Well, hello everyone and welcome to Marking the Roll, episode 31. My name's Phil Dye, I'm your host. We're coming to you from a little place called Thoreau, which is around about 80-90 kilometres south of Sydney on the east coast of Australia. But the content here is really um, relevant to all teachers and certainly all parents as well. We're very excited in Australia at the moment because our women's football team, the Matildas, have just got through the round of 16 and into the quarterfinals of the Women's World Cup, and we're exceptionally proud of them. Our last topic was on direct instruction and explicit direct instruction, and it had the most downloads of all of our episodes ever. And we plan on having more of those sorts of episodes to help teachers um, navigate the new ways of uh, that you, you're expected to teach. Um, but this episode is on something uh, very different. Around about uh, nine months ago, we had an episode, episode 20, which looked at the rise of gender dysphoria uh, among Australian school students. Now, that's not isolated to Australia, that's worldwide. Um, and uh, this podcast is not anti trans at all, but we are. Uh, anti-gender ideology in schools. So to uh, have trans ideology as a contagion in schools, often started by one or two students, um, and then other students come on board because it gives those others a sense of fame that they're doing something a little bit different. Sure, there may be a very small percentage who are genuinely gender dysphoric, but the research is that most of it is due to childhood trauma, uh, depression, and other uh, conditions inside the child's life. I personally am very much against any sort of gender transitioning, even socially for those under 18 or not adults, because if they do go on to puberty blockers and hormones, cross-sex hormones, um, it interferes with the brain and learning. And the only research that's been done on that has been done with other mammals, sheep, because you can't actually do it on a, on a real human. But um, the research was fairly damning that these drugs do drastically affect learning. And if you're a teacher, you know that learning is pretty important and the ability to retain information. And... Um, other mammals cannot retain information. And the research also is that the gender-affirming model is failing, and it has been stopped in many, many progressive countries. Um, so the research is not looking good. But still, in Australia, there is a contagion, and a lot of it is also pushed through uh, the gender ideology of external groups coming into schools and teaching under the guise of um, respectful relationships. Um, so some of these groups, and I did contact one called Elephant Ed for comment, and they said they would get back to me, and they did not. So um, they do not like being uh, researched. They don't like being uh, investigated. Um, but these sorts of organisations are the ones who are pushing gender ideology in schools. Now, the research also is that um, around about 70% of these kids, if they were left alone and, and let go through their adolescence, they'll turn out to be gay or lesbian. And um, if they were just left alone, they would have happy lives without a future full of pharmaceuticals. But 
um, there is this trend now towards transitioning with drugs and, and even surgery. Um, so the the answer seemingly is to leave the kids alone, uh, help them along through their trauma and their psychological issues, but don't hit them with gender ideology. Um, my grandfather was a transvestite. Back in the days of 1950, 1960, he used to dress up as a woman uh, proudly and walk uh, down to Newtown Station and um, catch a train to wherever the Sydney Push was having their parties. The Sydney Push was a group of um, intellectuals, academics, but also <laughs> tradespeople who thought differently uh, in the 1950s and 60s. Now, according to the University of New South Wales, the Sydney Push was a drunken gang of posers that no one could take seriously. Uh, Barry Humphreys, uh, you know, Edna Everidge, uh, was in the, the Push along with Germaine Greer and Clive James. And, and even in Barry Humphreys said that it was a fraternity of middle-class desperates, journalists, dropout academics, gamblers and poets and their doxies. So, um, you know, I think it was just a bit of a fun excuse for a party um so um he would go and play the piano for them and party and grandma knew about this she didn't like it that much when he came home very late or sometimes didn't come home at all because he used to uh, drink quite a bit um but even in those days there was different sorts of relationships and there was um width within those relationships he didn't peddle this ideology to children he'd be horrified to think that it was. Uh, he was an adult. He was an engineer during the day, a very responsible man. Um, and um, that's what he did. And I've got nothing against that sort of um, dressing up behavior and, and, and doing whatever you need to do psychologically to um, have a better life, but only for those adults, those who are over 18 and preferably over the age of 21. So this episode is for teachers on how to navigate that sticky area um, of gender transitioning. When you've got a child in your class, a student in your class who's transitioning for principals, who've got one or two students in the school who are gender transitioning, and it starts to become a bit of a contagion, just like this email I received from Doug. Now, um, usually I receive, you know, maybe five, six, seven, sometimes 10 emails from teachers. I only receive two uh, on this subject because it is dangerous for teachers to speak out about it. But I do urge you not to put detail in because we will edit it out. And there is a bit of detail here, which we've had to edit out. Um, so as not to give away any identity of either uh, the teacher or the child. Um, so this is what he had to say. I teach at an SSP in the of we have less than 50 students, but nearly half of them now call themselves transgender. One girl started it off and she quickly became a group leader. Others then followed. She is now on puberty meds and is constantly talking about it. Her mother supported her transition, but other parents are worried sick. This virus is far worse than COVID. Yes, far worse than COVID. Of course, that Douglas is not his real name and his voice has been changed with artificial intelligence. But you get the gist that once the contagion starts, especially in a school where there's some, some kids who are vulnerable, uh, who are after some sort of you know, identity, uh, then this will more likely take off. I had the second email from a, a teacher 
um, from Victoria. And again, I had to edit something out that was a bit of a giveaway. But this is what she had to say. Our school is in regional Victoria. We have less than 400 students and one teacher has led the charge in making sure every child has their pronouns listed. She also celebrated Pride Month in her class. The rest of us teachers, including the principal, think it's ridiculous and not part of our job. Even the students think it's stupid with one boy, a real joker, insisting he be called. We have no trans students at our school. So even at a school where there's no trans students or kids with gender issues, they still have uh, someone, one teacher, um, making sure that everyone's pronouns are listed. Now, for most teachers, hopefully this is not an issue for you. For most schools, hopefully this is not uh, in your school. But it is a growing concern. And this episode aims to keep you out of court. Uh, It aims to uh, make sure that you keep your job and you don't get sacked, just like a teacher in New Zealand has just been sacked for refusing to use the pronouns uh, that a student prefers. We'll look at the legality uh, of a trans student wanting to play sport in their preferred gender's uh, team, uh, using toilets and what to do about that. Uh, But I want to make it clear that this Um, The information here is only intended as general. It is not specific advice on any issues. And if you're a principal or a teacher and you have um, a problem around this, uh, you have to get your own legal advice. Now, for this episode, I interviewed Anna Kerr. Anna Kerr is the Principal Solicitor from the Feminist Legal Clinic. She's a specialist in discrimination law, which fits very tightly in with this subject. And she makes some very positive suggestions as to what teachers can do. And I'll summarise those at the very end of the episode for you. And I began by asking Anna what her legal background was. Uh, Yeah, sure. I've been a solicitor for just over 30 years, and my background was working largely in community legal centres, always in free legal services, doing social justice work. I I began my career in the Aboriginal Legal Service um, and across a range of areas, so criminal, civil, and uh, a bit of family law. Founded Feminist Legal Clinic in 2017, and we specialise. Really, we were doing a lot of domestic violence law, and discrimination laws. Uh, The laws in relation to education don't just vary between countries, but they also vary between Australian states and territories. And I'm saying that nothing I say should be relied upon as legal advice. Now, as you know, teachers are the main audience for this, teachers and parents. And in Queensland, some principals are asking their teachers to withhold information about a child's gender transitioning, to withhold information from uh, the parent. And this is what ex-principal Tracy Tully had to say. When a parent enrolls a student at at a school, uh, they sign a contract and so does the student. That contract at no time says that a parent, that a school can withhold information from that parent. 
uh, unless of course there's a court order. So therefore what we're, what we're seeing happening is that schools, are, uh, teachers are being told to withhold information uh, to parents about the students, but there's no policies and there are no procedures by the department that dictates that teachers must lie to parents. Anna, what's your view on that? There's nothing that requires teachers to lie to parents. In fact, the community charter says that professional relationships with school staff are based on transparency, honesty and mutual respect. Um, saying this, there would be times when a teacher would have a duty of confidentiality not to disclose things that have been shared with them by a child, um, which they've clearly shared on a confidential basis. Um, however, a teacher's duty to observe confidentiality and privacy to a student must be weighed against their duty of care to prioritise the child's safety and well-being. Well, I, th I think the word lie is certainly not used. It's, it's not disclose. So, it is, so if a child tells a teacher and the school that they're transitioning socially, then the teacher in Queensland, anyway, has been asked not to disclose this to the family. Yeah, well, I mean, I think that's problematic um, because if a child has openly adopted a gender identity and is requesting that school staff and students address them by new name or different pronouns, this can hardly be considered confidential information as it's been shared or is intended to be shared with a large group. And therefore, there can't really be an expectation of confidentiality at that point. Um, because once every every average child in the class knows that your child is being referred to by a new name, new pronouns, um, obviously they, they will go home and tell their parents. I mean, the, the idea that a teacher would have to observe confidentiality in that regard at that point seems ludicrous and is inconsistent with respectful communications with the parents. Now, on, on the other hand, it's quite different, obviously, if a child shares a confidence with a teacher, let's say relating to their sexual activity, there could be a duty of confidentiality. On the other hand, the teacher would have to weigh that with their obligations as mandatory reporters and also their obligation to observe appropriate professional boundaries in relationship in the relationship with the child. What you've said seems very interesting in that if a teacher is asked not to disclose it to parents, but the student actually has disclosed it to every one of their peers and everyone in the class and everyone in the school knows that uh, Sally is now Sam, then... Of course, the parents will know about it eventually because all the parents will will yeah. chat about it. So really, it's it's ridiculous request to ask teachers yeah. not to share it with 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 parents. It's absolutely, and I'm I am wondering is that a legislative thing, or do you, is it just a policy document? In which case, perhaps someone should point that out to the yes, the I, I think Anna, yeah, I think Anna. Most of this are, this is policy documents. It's certainly yeah. not the law. They're, they're all in policy documents. Now, in this same area, women's spaces are being eroded everywhere. I think you, you, you'd know that, as are the girls' spaces in schools. If a, uh, a boy um, self-IDs as a girl um, and wants to use the girls' toilets, um, is there a legal risk if the school says, uh, sorry, no, no, you can't do that? This is true because there's an increasing recognition of sex based on self-identification and that's having profound and devastating impacts on the ability to maintain female spaces and services everywhere, including within the education system. Unfortunately, I think by now all Australian jurisdictions have made some legislative changes which either allow for change of sex on official documentation on the basis of self-declaration 
or in the process of doing so. Uh, in addition to the many states that have passed discrimination laws, in addition to that, many states have passed discrimination laws that effectively oblige service providers to recognise a person's assumed gender identity or otherwise risk a discrimination claim against them. So it is the case that the extent to which these laws actually compel respect of self-identification in every context, that's, that is still being tested and there have been and are cases currently before tribunals and courts that are trying to resolve this issue, not only in Australia but all over the world. So it's, it's not a settled issue because none of, it hasn't really been put to the test sufficiently. But I can tell you that those individual services and businesses that are trying to put it to the test are paying a, a hefty price for having the courage to question the wisdom of these laws because people are being sacked and disciplined all over the country for speaking out. And just this weekend, I've had another woman who's contacted me. She's been disciplined at work for objecting to males using the women's toilets, um, males who are claiming to be women. And she's likely to face termination of her employment if she doesn't concede and apologise. So um, obviously we would advise her then to look at bringing an unfair dismissal claim. But, you know, the reality is not everybody... Um, is in a position to go down that path. People have their livelihoods to consider. Schools are in a very difficult position having to balance their obligations pursuant to discrimination yes. legislation with their obligations in relation to the safeguarding of children. So it, this, this is by no means resolved. And for those people in a position to um, challenge it, I urge them to do so. But I also recognise that um, a lot of people can't. You know, they, they, they need their jobs. Yeah, 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 that's right. Like a lot of schools, um, they have a disabled toilet as well. They, they'll have a, a boy's toilet and they've got a girl's toilet, but they've also got a disabled. Now, could that disabled toilet also be um, gender-neutral toilet? There's no there's no law against that, is there? No, no, I mean, I think that that's right. I think there's a way forward for all of this, but it's just that legally, um, when you... If you say you can't use the girls' toilets, like even if you provide them with another satisfactory alternative, such as a, a unisex toilet, the, the the problem is at the point that you say you can't, and you say that you're not recognising that they are uh, yes. of their. At that point, they can say, "Well, you're treating me less favourably than you know yes. <laughs> other girls." So yes. I'm a girl too, and you must recognise that. And if you say I have to use, uh, you know. A different toilet from everyone else. You're treating me less favourably than the others, and yes. and therefore I'm going to bring a discrimination claim against you. So for teachers listening now, it's it's if you're seen to be um, carry on actions that are less favourable to that individual, then there can be a discrimination claim, and you could be in big trouble. On their basis of their gender identity or transgender identity, so every state the legislation is slightly differently worded, and, and it, a lot of it's quite um, conflicting and complicated. Because yes. <laughs> so that I'm not trying to scare people off challenging these laws. I think that these laws need to be robustly challenged. Uh, but I would be doing a disservice if I said, oh, no, you can do that. That's all right. As long as they've got a unisex toilet, you can tell them they can't use the girls' toilet because I'm dealing with people. I've just got one at the moment. That's exactly what she thought the position was in her employment, that these individuals could use the unisex toilets that were available. Um, so she told them that she didn't think they should be in the women's toilet, and now as a result of that, she her employment is, is being threatened.
Now, talking about complicated, um, a, a, a teacher in New Zealand's just been sacked for refusing to use a student's preferred pronouns. Now, I find this whole pronoun business completely crazy and, and, and hellishly complicated. Can the same thing happen to a teacher in Australia here if they don't use the, the student's preferred pronouns? Or does that, again, depend on state laws? Well, it does, again, depend on state laws. But yes, it can happen and it may well have already happened um, because I get contacted on a regular basis by people all over Australia in a broad range of occupations, including teachers, who have their employment, who've had their employment threatened over this issue. So, I mean, it depends. It's, sometimes it's because they've questioned um, this policy in a staff meeting or they've said something about the toilets or that they haven't done a pronoun round, you know. Like, so they're, they're all different cases. Um, some have raised child protection concerns. But anyhow, regardless, um, in most cases, regardless of the outcome, in some of these cases we're able to, you know, th- there's a back down on the part of the employer. In other cases, the employee finds another job and just gets out of there. Yeah. Um, there's other types of cases that we've run, which have ta- we've taken it to a certain level, and then at that point the, the client just doesn't have the resources to take it beyond, for instance, the tribunal level. And often, in most cases, the clients don't choose to make their circumstances public out of fear of the abuse and threats that they may receive if their identity is publicly known. I mean, or, or their, their fear that that will happen. Um, and also their implications for their future employment if they're known to be someone who you know, cause trouble that they may not be able to get a job elsewhere. Um, yeah. For instance, one health professional we assisted successfully in in answering disciplinary proceedings before a professional body chose not to go public. Even Originally she was planning to, but then she got concerned that the clinic might be blown up or vandalised. I mean, I don't... So this is the difficulty. It takes a certain amount of courage to go public in the current environment. I think yeah. perhaps people's fears are overstated. Um, I... I mean, I say that knowing a lot of people, of course, do. But the people who are active on social media get tremendous pushback. My answer to that is maybe maybe do less social media <laughs> because um, I don't. Um, I haven't had a terribly bad experience. I mean, I've had a few abusive things, but not very much. So I, I, I'm not trying to frighten people. I'm just explaining why you don't hear more about these cases because people yeah. are frightened. They Whether are, they should yeah. be that frightened, I'm not sure, but... Unfortunately, yep. I mean, we are getting cases with people being assaulted and that sort of thing. So there are it's starting to happen. Um, yep. Unfortunately, many individuals um, are also conscious that the union movement is also very captured by this ideology, and very. so they don't join up. And so they're often unrepresented when defending their employment rights because they can't afford to, you know, private representation. So I do I kind of urge people to join their unions and just, you know, go to them and, and require, you know, representation if they're being treated unfairly on account of these issues. Because if we want to see some change also within the union movement, people need to, you know, use their unions. You're per- you're perfectly right there. I've asked every teacher union in the country uh, to come on to this episode, including the New South Wales Teachers Federation, who said no, they thought that would be best not to speak on this issue uh, because uh, they've been captured by it, completely indoctrinated by this trans ideology, and it's a great shame. Now, um, and, and now Anna, here's, a, here's a bit of a question without notice. Most, most teachers are just normal people and they're trying to do their best for the class and they're doing their job... Um, and they, they're, they're not activists, they're not into this issue. It seems that there is sim- simply a, a small, a very tiny group of activists who have swayed this whole thing. Have you found that 
in all of the, the women's issues that you deal with? In this issue, yes. If you want to sway a group, um, if you just plant a few people in a group like um, who back each other up and who don't necessarily seem to be connected but back each other up, you can very effectively sway that whole group because most people don't want to speak out and be unpopular and say something that seems to be different from the consensus. Uh, so, you know, there's a lot of cult psychology being used and a lot of, um, you know, it's, it's, it's fascinating to watch how it happens. And I've been in many groups and yeah. and I've known a lot of people contact me privately because I've, I've spoken out in many different contexts, um, including within a political party when I'm a long-term member of the Greens, or I was, and then they expelled me as a result of this issue. And many people contacted me privately to say that they agreed with me, but they were too frightened for various reasons to speak out publicly. Um, so I think to teachers who um, want to fight back um, and are not necessarily wanting to put their, their job on the line, I think they need to start very carefully talking to people, having private conversations and working out who else agrees with them. And then when you've got a certain number of people, start talking about how you can act collectively because if you act as an individual, it is very easy for them to take you down. Whereas if there's a larger group, um, I mean, even just a group of two or three is much harder than if it's just an individual. It's easy to stigmatise that individual as a bigot and, um, and, and, and just bring disciplinary proceedings against them. And, and next thing you know, you're just out of that organisation, whether it's for employment or a or a group that you're in, some other group that you're in. But the, you're quite right. So, but if there's six six teachers at a school who are rallying against this, then <laughs> they're not going to sack those six because, geez, they need teachers at the moment. Yeah. So I think what they should do is, if you get six together, you should then get onto your union, make sure you all join up, and collectively approach the union and say, "This is what's happening." And then it becomes harder for the union to to not be very helpful. <laughs> That's their job. Now, um, here's, a, here's a case scenario that a parent wants her son, who is now socially transitioning to a girl, wears girls' clothes and, and, and you know, girls' female pronouns, um, and this parent wants the, the this transitioned boy to play in the school netball team and use the girls' change room. Now, the parents of the other girls in the team are, are upset, right? They're angry and the principal is confused. Look, people think the principals know about all this stuff, but they really, they really don't know about it. What does a school have to do? Do they have to let this boy, who is, thinks they're a girl, uh, play in the team? Well, in relation to sport, there are actually exceptions in the discrimination legislation. And I, I think the principal should rely on these. So, for instance, where the children are over 12... The Sex Discrimination Act, that's the federal legislation, that says it's not unlawful to discriminate on the ground of sex or gender identity by excluding um, persons from participation in any competitive sporting activity in which strength, stamina or physique of competitors is relevant. So I would say in netball falls squarely in that. And, and so that they should rely on those exceptions. And there's also exceptions, equivalent ones, in state legislation. But unfortunately, the guidelines for inclusion of transgender people in sport that were issued by the Australian Human Rights Commission in 2019 kind of muddied the waters. They created confusion by effectively misrepresenting the provisions of the legislation that the Human Rights Commission 
is really meant to be administering. And in my view, those guidelines should be retracted by government. Um, and that then had a knock-on effect to all the sporting codes who felt that they were then obliged to yeah. act in accordance with the guidelines. So that, that's not legislation, they're just guidelines. So I think the principal should seek legal advice and should the parents and girls in the team, and they should stay firm. Um, unfortunately, the school may well... Um, look, I think it, the school, unfortunately, is likely not to do that, that they're likely to you know, be worried that there'll be a discrimination claim against them if they don't let the boys um, join the team, boys, that is, who are identifying as girls. So due to the cost and difficulty of having to defend litigation, in most cases, these unreasonable expectations aren't being challenged. So even when there's a valid argument under the legislation. So the reality is that the trans activists in this area are very well supported. They can ex access free yeah. re legal representation with free community legal services, back yep. to major law firms, which are signed up to the trans agenda by participating in ACON's Australian Workplace Equality Index. But on the outside of the equa equation, we've got very little in the way of free legal help. We've just mentioned the unions. But, I mean, for instance, our service is entirely unfunded and we're staffed entirely by volunteers right. because... And we had an office and that was actually taken from us by the City of Sydney as a result of this issue. So there is no funding, regardless of what the other side says. Yeah. You made a very good point before that sport is the one thing that's excluded from the Discrimination Act as far as, um, you, you know, choosing who's to go in a team. Because oh. when I was looking it up, um, now education is not excluded. You know, you've got to include someone in the classroom or in the school. But yes, I read that sport is. So realistically, according to, to really the World Discrimination Act, you could exclude the person. Yeah, I mean, each, each state has slightly different wording for those exclusions. But I think generally sport is one where there is an exception in the legislation and people need to get their you know own advice depending on where, whereabouts they are, which jurisdiction. But I think that one is, is, is one where they really should persist because there is some legislative backup. Marking the Roll is supported entirely by subscribers and donors who get two non-public podcasts per year and the chance to ask questions of our guests. The cost is $35 per year, yet if two people join via Substack there's a 30% discount. Just select the group subscription option when you go to the Marking the Roll Substack page for you both to subscribe for $22. Thanks for listening and just search for Marking the Roll on Substack. Look, the next one is, is, is quite a biggie because there is a group um, that has just started in Victoria called Resist Gender Education Australia. So they uh, have parents joining them en masse, actually, in order to resist having gender education groups come into the school and talk about um, trans rights. Now, this group, uh, these companies that go into schools go under the guise of Respectful Relationships Australia. Oh. And a year oh. five, I've been told that a year five class, and these are only 11-year-old kids, I've been told that they must use the required pronouns of another person or they can be expelled. Now, this was said to a year five class. Now, the year five class then got very scared, of course. They're also told that it's fine for boys who ID as girls to play in the girls' sports. Stuff that is really 
contentious. Can parents legally withdraw their kids from these sorts of education sessions? Oh, I think they certainly can, but I'm not sure that that's the best approach because I think, you know, I think parents should actually talk together about these things and then send as many complaints to the school as possible about the use of these outside providers and the identifying the problems with the content. And, I mean, I think that immediately they should ask for a, a meeting with the principal, discuss the matter. They should ask to see the materials that are intended for future classes in advance. They should then identify content that's problematic. And I think they should also work out that at least one parent, hopefully someone's available to request that they be allowed to sit in on future exactly. classes exactly. Um, where they can take notes, uh, nothing like that. Uh, withdrawing any one child will just make that child feel as if they're being singled out and it may lead to them feeling resistant to their parents' concerns. It will not help the overall problem, which is dissemination of really harmful propaganda within our schools, which will have damaging impacts on all the children, regardless of whether they're in that class or not. Um, yeah. So I think it's better to confront it head on. That's my personal view. So it, it, this is where it becomes useful if you are someone who's active in the school environment, you know other parents, you're on the PNC, this is why it's helpful to be a little bit engaged. I, I know that's difficult for a lot of people who are you know, working full time and don't, but that's why you want to know some of these parents of your children's friends. You get them on the phone and you need to talk to them about just what's being said and how that is harmful. So, yes, exactly what you said before, that teachers join in together. One is no good, but get, you know, get two or three or four or as many as you can. So parents should get as many as you can as well yeah. together to, to confront the school. Um, now, um, the, there's a school in New York called the Charlton School, and they have a clinical psychologist that, that oversees the school and helps the kids out and all that sort of stuff. But they have refused to affirm a student's gender ideas. They've, they've gone against what the US government is saying. But they have the full involvement of the parents because the parents are sick of being uh, gender, having their kids gender affirmed by the hospitals and the, the rather woke medical system in the USA. Um, and so they refuse to use the pronouns of, of the students um, and they address the childhood trauma that these kids have largely gone through and the social contagion that happened in the school. Right, So they're taking a completely different approach with the guidance of a clinical psychologist uh, and it's working a treat. So these um, vulnerable kids are now doing well again in the school. Would it be illegal for a school to do the same in Australia? Yeah, well, look, I, it sounds like a, a worthy approach. And in my view, a school doing that, in, acting in accordance with their duty of care to protect the safety and well-being of children from what is, I think, a, a very harmful social contagion. And a, a private school in Australia could attempt to do this, um, but they'd have to be prepared to defend litigation quite poss possibly. So... Um, because in a, an increasing number of Australian jurisdictions, they're introducing so-called conversion therapy bans in which they've kind of piggybacked gender identity with um, the, the gay conversion therapy issue. Yeah. And these provisions effectively mandate that health professionals and others, um, which could include teachers, depends on the legislation because they're slightly, they're slightly different um, legislation each each jurisdiction, but they basically mandate that that they affirm an individual's chosen gender identity. And if you're involved in, for instance, you know, questioning that, uh, you're, you're 
exposing yourself potentially to a, a civil claim or even um, worse um, under this legislation. Like the Victorian legislation in particular is really oppressive and there are prison sentences up to 10 years for those who fail to affirm a person's gender identity and who are alleged to have caused serious injury as a result. And um, I, that's, that's quite frightening legislation. Uh, yeah, I've yeah. got a number of concerns about that legislation and they've got something planned in New South Wales. In fact, right at the moment, um, there's plans to introduce, Alex Greenwich has plans and also the Labor government itself is, is, has plans to introduce um, this sort of legislation in New South Wales. And people should actually be writing, if you're in New South Wales, writing immediately about your concerns in this area because they do have... They're doing it by stealth. There is some sort of consultation period at the moment, which is very short, and it's only been—it's not being publicly advertised. It's only stakeholders who are being asked their opinion about these plans. So, look, I, I, anyone who's got the energy, please, please write to yep. irrelevant members of parliament, yep. ministers, etc., in New South Wales, because it's going to go through here very shortly. Otherwise, um, look, you, you, you mentioned then before. Can, um conversion law, the law, but the, the research is that about 70% of kids who wanted to transition but decide not to end up as being gay or lesbian. So yeah. couldn't those who were trying to urge them into being transgender actually be accused of conversion? Well, exactly. I mean, certainly the, we've got a large amount of our membership as lesbian, left-wing lesbian women who were the first to really be sounding... I'm about all this, and that's exactly what they think. They think this is actually about conversion. This is about, you know, getting rid of lesbians, basically. I mean, the term lesbian has become a dirty word. Um, any girl who's, you know, gender non-conforming, is a bit of a tomboy, risks being told that she should um, she should um, take transition and take, you know, hormones and have surgeries. So it's a huge issue in the lesbian community because a lot of lesbians who present as what used to be considered butch um, are now being told that they are in fact men and should be taking hormones and having surgeries. Yes, ridiculous. That, that's a conversion. Now, a lot of, a lot of teachers and, and parents listening to this would think, how, how on earth have we got this far um, in all this? Now, I just wanted to, to remind listeners that back in 2019, a law firm called Denton's, uh, which is a, one of the biggest law firms in the world, were paid by Thomas Reuters and a conglomerate of uh, trans activist groups to put forward a book on how to do this, how to get gender transitioning into public life and accepted. And their whole platform was to go to children, to affect children first. And that Denton's manifesto really is available for anyone to see. But big business has funded this. Um, this is not some organic thing. This has been forced into society um, by people with money. Now, um, just a final question, Anna. Thanks so much for talking to us. 75% of the teaching workforce are women. Um, and women have fought hard for equality all around the world. But it seems that it's women who are going along with this gender ideology madness. Is it just that they're being overly kind? Or, or do you think women don't really know the, the, the real issues behind it? 
Uh, yeah, I think it's both of those things, and um, and what you were referring to earlier, this this sort of global um, indoctrination that's taking place, the relentless propaganda that we're all being exposed to through our mainstream media, through social media, all our corporations, our government departments have all signed up to this workplace equality scheme, which uh, mandates that they they do this. We're really getting saturation level um, propaganda, and and. And until it, and so women do think that they're it's about being kind to a marginalised minority group. And so until it impacts on them directly, most women don't consider the implications of allowing this to all go through. And most of the legislation has been introduced by stealth. So it was already done. It was a done deal before we even knew about it. I mean, New South Wales had laws allowing some of these things quite early on, um, and now they're just catching up with the most recent um, moves in other states. Uh, so now that women are aware um, or are becoming aware, but they've now realised, however, if they even question it or express doubts about it, they'll be cast as a bigot and they'll be putting their employment at risk. They'll actually be socially ostracised. So it's all being very cleverly orchestrated. There's just massive control of all these, even like grassroots organisations receiving funding from large foundations so that they, you know, sign up to this agenda. It's, it's been very, very interesting how they've been able to do this but that's what big money does and of course we've been know that there's certain billionaires in america who have an interest in propagating this ideology and they've been very effective at doing it um anna kerr thank you very much for talking to us this issue is not going to go away quickly but um we hope that we can start to chip away at it as much as we can thanks thanks phil for giving me the opportunity to to let people know what's happening And that was Anna Kerr, the principal solicitor from the Feminist Legal Clinic. Um, Now, I said at the start that I'd be going through a summary of what Anna said or the important points. I think one of the most important points was that a teacher should not object or uh, express their concern on their own. They should get a group together. Doing it on your own, you can easily be labelled a transphobe or a bigot. Um, But if you've got a group of two, three, four, hopefully even more, then you can uh, express concerns as a group. Then you can go to the federation or the union as a group and ask for support in this. Whereas if you go as an individual, it is so much harder to get something done. Now, this applies to parents as well. If parents want to complain about what's happening in respectful relationship courses, then they should do it as a group, not as an individual. As far as using a student's preferred pronouns go, yes, you can be sacked if you refuse to use those pronouns. So you have to be pretty careful. But if you are really objecting, don't object on your own. Uh, Get a group together of similar-minded teachers at the school and go as a group to the principal. But yes, you do have to be very careful of uh, using the correct pronouns. Now, what about students wanting to use the toilet facilities of their preferred or identified gender? Well, You can't be unfavourable to them because of their gender identity. So you can't say, no, you can't use this because you're really a boy. 
you're not really a girl. You can't do that. Uh, but you can look back at their previous behavior and their prior behavior, and you could use that as an excuse. So you can say, look, your behavior in the last uh, two months was really dreadful. This has got nothing to do with your gender identity, but we don't believe that your behavior is good enough to share facilities with with the girls. Now, if the school decides to allow um, a transgender student to use the disabled facilities, uh, they could claim that they are being um, disadvantaged and having unfavorable treatment because of their transgender identity. So you have to be pretty careful with that one as well. A really important point relates to sport. If a transgender person wants to play in their preferred gender or their identified gender sporting team, uh, it's fine to discriminate against them on the basis of their physical uh, characteristics and their physical abilities. Sport is the only thing that you can discriminate fairly with. Um, So if a boy that identifies as a girl wants to play in the netball team or the football team, it is okay to say no on that issue. As a matter of fact, swimming, the International Swimming Federation has just banned all transgender athletes from um, competing against women. And I believe the Australian Rowing Corporation has also done the same thing. But as Anna said, always consult the regulations from your state to make sure that you're not uh, doing something illegal. Now, what have you been told by the principal that you cannot speak to the parent about um, a student's transitioning socially at school? If that student has openly told all of their peers that they are transitioning, um, then those other students have probably told their parents and everyone's chatting about it at the dinner table. It's not a confidentiality issue. Um, And therefore, uh, it is ridiculous for a principal or anyone from a department to say, no, you cannot talk to the parent about it. Um, And you would not be breaching confidentiality because it's not a confidential thing. Everyone knows about it. But if a student does talk to you about other very private things, no, you can't talk to the parent about that. Now, on the other side of the coin, if a teacher feels that a student is being pressured into gender transitioning by a parent, it does come under your mandatory reporting because it is the the health and safety of the student that is at risk. It really is up to the teacher, but if the teacher feels that the student is being pressured and pushed into this by maybe an extremist parent, then they can, uh, with their mandatory reporting uh, obligations, Uh, take this further. Now, what if the teacher just feels bad about this? What if the teacher just disagrees with it, that thinks that it's just not right, the ideology is not correct? You can't really express that. It is quite dangerous to go out on your own and speak your mind on any of this. Now, finally, what if the school wants to follow the example from the Charlton School in New York and um, just completely Uh, deny uh, students' gender identity, uh, refuse to use pronouns in the school, but actually get the parents in to talk about all this and um, have the parents on side and look at uh, the childhood trauma that the the child may have had and and take a psychological approach. Well, uh, that may be the best approach, of course, for all schools to take, but as Anna said, you would have to speak to 
the departments of education uh, in your state to make sure that you're not doing anything illegal. A public school probably could not do it, but a private school would have some very um, good legal standing in order to get this done. So, as I said at the start, I hope most teachers in most schools aren't confronted with this issue, but I know that there's many who are. Now, next episode will be on the university system and the sort of students that uh, the university system is churning out. It's come in from so much flack in the past month. Even the federal government is looking at changing the entire running of the university system. I'll be looking at some university courses and looking actually at the content. Um, And you'd be surprised how often the word activist comes into the content of university courses. Seemingly innocuous courses, maybe in teaching, maybe in communication, where activism is um, promoted. Anyway, we'll be looking at that in the next episode. Uh, And in the final episode for Term 4, we'll be looking at the gender issue again and gender education in schools specifically, but this will really be for parents. Uh, We know a lot of teachers are parents, of course, um, but we'll be looking at what parents can do to better understand what their children are learning in school about gender education. My name's Phil Dye. You've been listening to Marking the Roll. Please follow us on Substack or on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Here's something important to finish off with, and I'll see you again soon. The content of this episode was for informational purposes only and should not be considered legal advice. Educators with issues around this topic should get their own legal advice from a qualified lawyer. We are not responsible for any losses, damages, or liabilities that may arise from this episode. Mm